And two weeks ago, we started the Old Testament series, but because, and I'm, I'm not an Old Testament tutor. My, my background, my academic background is in early church history and New Testament, and specifically looking at how did the earliest Christians, you know, the people that knew Jesus, how did they form themselves? What was their vision for society? How did they organize themselves? And a lot of that was how did they, what did they make of the Old Testament, their scriptures? And so we looked at things like the, the Christ lens or the Christological hermeneutic, like using Jesus to interpret everything else. And, and we had a lot of good questions on the board and then I also have a, a printout. And I was very aware, I didn't actually deal with I dealt with some, I'll take a little bit of credit, I actually dealt with a few. But what, what I was very aware of, and I knew it would happen anyway, it wasn't a mistake, I knew that this week was coming up. And um, I have um, brought with me uh, Jonathan Squirrel and, and Freddie Headley, and they'll introduce themselves, in fact, you can come up now. Um, Freddie Headley, is a, uh, uh, he runs a, a theology school in Norfolk for his, lo his local church. He is also uh, an academic, and he teaches, and his doctorate is on uh, the Lament, the Book of Lamentations, and th those texts. Jonathan Squirrel runs a church also in Norfolk. Something about Norfolk, there's the, it, something in the water, you guys. Norfolk. John Candy. Yeah. Um, and Jonathan Squirrel, uh, his doctorate is on the language of the, of the spirit in the Old Testament, the Ruach, which he'll tell you about. And he also runs a church, he and his wife run uh, a, a Baptist church in Norfolk. So I just knew that these were the two people to bring in. Spirit-filled, love Jesus, always one foot in the local church, another foot in the academy, and they're Old Testament doctors. Doctor Spirit and Doctor Lament. What else could you ask for? So what we're going to do, um, <laughs> what we're going to do is, uh, you, you sent in questions, right? It is my dream. Listen, I might not do it, okay? I might fail, but it is my goal that every single question will get addressed. That you will hear your question addressed. And it might not be absolutely answered, but it will be addressed. And if we run out of time and we don't get to go, I have asked my two Old Testament scholars, I said, would you mind if I interview you and I record the interview and then I will send it to Andy and Jean-Luc and they will make that recording available. Like, you will get your question addressed, okay? So that's my, my vision, that's my goal. So we'll see what happens, but I'm aware that every single one of these questions, you know, you could take 45 minutes, an hour discussing any of them. I mean, there's one here about Job, which just us talking about Job before the event started, they started talking, 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 I thought we could just talk about Job for an hour, right? So we're gonna try, and that's the goal. So, and we're also gonna have a roving mic, so um, if things come up that you want to discuss, then we're gonna do it. But the way we hold, I, I said this last week, but the way that we hold, theology is not about giving clever answers to complicated questions actually. It's about holding a space to think Christianly about our own Christianity. And another way, to, another way is, is to try and speak as excellently about God as we can. So it's an act of worship. Theology is just trying to speak as excellently as God, as, about God as we can. And to do that, that often means holding a space in which we can look at things without fear, right? with trust, 
with love for one another. Um, so it is 100% likely that we will be coming up with answers. I think these two don't even agree with each other about things. 100% there will be things discussed today that some people in the room will not agree with. Um, theology isn't about laying down one answer for all times. It's about saying, this is the different ways that Christians with good will and good hearts have tried to answer these questions. And this is what we're going to do, right? So um, that's, that's my vision for theology. And that's the mode that we're going to continue, I think. How about that? And I've even said to them, if they disagree, like admit it and let's talk about it. Because that's almost more fun to me to see how two, two people who love Jesus can disagree with each other about genocide in the Old Testament or something like that. So we'll see. Now, um, are we ready to go? Are we all right? Yeah. So I've got a list of questions which you've sent in. And we also have some on the board which, which related I think a lot of them doubled up on, on the, this. So we're going to try and go through it. Now, guys, if you come in, you just let's introduce yourselves. I, did I do a good enough job, Jonathan? Tell us about your... Tell us about what made you smile the most yesterday. Yesterday? What happened yesterday? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just a get-to-know-you question. Yes, absolutely. Sorry? What makes you smile, Jonathan? Tell, tell us that. <laughs> yeah, well, last night we had our School of Supernatural Life at our church. Okay. And um, Stephen's actually been to help teach at that last term. And I think what made me smile last night was having all these people in our living room, ordinary people, filled up with the possibility of who they can be in God. And they have a lot of questions, they have a lot of concerns, a lot of real issues that they're facing in their lives. But they are so impacted by what God has done for them and what God wants to do through them. And they're finding that they can do the stuff. They yeah. don't have to watch other people do it, but they can participate. And that puts a big smile on my face. Okay. Freddie? Um, no, I'm not going to ask you much to smile. We're going to find out about you. What person would you like to be when you grow up? Oh, man. Who would I'm, you like to be? I'm really worried I might have grown up without noticing. It's... Um, <laughs> I want to be Jane Williams when I grow up. You want to be Jane Rowan Williams? Williams' wife, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. She's Do you lovely. know, I had a, I had a um, sorry, this is not answering the question, this is a tangent, this is a conversation, though. I had a, um, a meeting when I was first applying for PhDs, I had a meeting at Cambridge, uh -huh. and, uh, and we had a conversation, and, and the guy I was talking to was saying, so, first question up, how's your Hebrew? Huh. I said, well, it depends really on who you compare it to. And I just pointed out the window and said, you know, compared to the person out the window, pretty good. And he just looked at me and said, that's Rowan Williams' office. <laughs> so, well, maybe not that window. <laughs> so you might be Rowan Williams when you grow up. Do you know, the, as I grow older, it's, it's very soppy really, as I grow older, uh, I am really pleased for people to point out more and more how like I, my dad I am. Okay. Yeah. I love it. All right, come forward a bit. Um, I feel like I'm a little bit far away from everybody, so... All right, chaps, here we're going to go. We have two questions here that are slightly related to each other, and I've grouped them together. One is, as Jesus said, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Yet, not all laws are still being applied. For example, the ceremonial ones. How do today's Christians know which Old Testament laws are still to be followed? And there's another uh, good question. It has to do with celebrating holy days. It's a long question, so I won't read the whole thing, but it has to do with celebrating holy days. Um, which ones are we supposed to celebrate and commemorate? And what about the, the Old Testament mentions lots of covenants and, and observing different 
festivals? Do we have to do those? And what about observing festivals and uh, uh, ceremonies that don't get mentioned in the scriptures? Is it all right for Christians to do that? So what do you guys think about Old Testament ceremony and Christians' relationship to observing them, those things? Hi there. I think in many ways what we're doing as uh, believers is holding together things that seemingly seem to be completely opposite and we're holding them in tension. And um, my, my background, just very, very briefly, was uh, my first undergraduate degree was mathematics. And um, I don't know if there are any mathematicians here, but it's obviously the, the, the pinnacle of science and everybody loved it at school. But I love things to be precise. I love things to fit into neat little boxes. I love things to be provable and demonstrable. And faith often isn't like that. Uh, and that is part of the challenge for me, looking at some of these sorts of things. How do we connect the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures and, and the Christian New Testament? Um, to me, as we look at things such as Old Testament festivals, Old Testament laws, regulations, and so on, those, uh, to me, are, are, are cl pretty clearly for a time, for a purpose, and for a people. And as Christians, those things are not incumbent upon us to follow. That said, we learn so much about who we are by looking at some of these things. So one of the questions was, do we have to observe Passover? And I would say, no, we don't have to observe Passover. Having said that, on Good Friday at our church in North Norfolk, we had a Passover supper. And the reason we did that was because the Passover points to Jesus. We, we flippantly joked before the meeting tonight, you know, the answer to every question is Jesus. Well, of course, <laughs> that's intellectually completely unsatisfying, but there is an element of truth in that. And of course, the whole point of Passover is the Passover lamb that Paul talks about in Corinthians. Jesus is our Passover lamb. So we look at that and it makes the picture whole. So to me, it's, it's taking a picture and so much of the background to that picture is filled in through these Old Testament festivals, laws, regulations that were for a people and for a purpose and for a time. And in the backdrop to that, the greater reality, this is Christ, it talks about that in Colossians, the, the greater reality is who we are and who we see in Jesus. And I think two weeks ago, or whenever it was that Stephen was last here, he mentioned about looking at the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, through the lens that is Jesus. And if we look at it in that perspective, all that was there comes alive and it paints a backdrop which makes the New Testament make sense. You can't really interpret the book of Hebrews, for example, without reference to the Old Testament and to the Levitical priesthood and to the laws and everything that went on. Uh, so to me, the two things hold together. Do I follow those uh, Hebrew scripture patterns? No, I don't. Do I believe there's value in, in, in studying them and observing them and what they speak and what they speak about for the future? Absolutely, I do. I believe the two come together and are completely compatible. Um, Jonathan, do you think... Oh, and Freddie, go ahead. So you think that we don't have to celebrate Passover, but we get to if we want to. Do you think that there are some things we shouldn't do? Are there some things in the, some of the Old Testament prescribed laws and ceremonies that actually we shouldn't choose to do? Um, I don't, I mean, I don't really have much of an opinion on that. I mean, the, the, the emphasis of stuff that you get, I mean, this comes up as, a, as an issue with Paul, right? So um, 
so Paul is having an active conversation with various churches about how much of the law yeah. is to be maintained, but particularly the, the setting is how much of the law needs to be taken up by people coming in and uh, from outside of the Jewish community. That's really the emphasis of the conversation. There isn't, there isn't really much of an equal and opposite what you need to lay down. So the, the, the question for me becomes, when Jesus talks about fulfilling the law, what's he talking about? That, that's the, the, the question. So it strikes me that there are three sort of possibilities there. Uh, you kind of get to pick which one you want. You know, you have a, you have a freedom as a, as a theological thinker here. Uh, but so one option is that he does it really well. And it's just, I fulfill the law, I, I do it. You don't, I do. You know, so that's one possibility. Um, the other is he's, he's completed it. So it's like I did level nine and I'm done now and it's done. So you don't have to play it anymore because I've played it and I've won. So that's trivializing it. That is how it is taught um, very often trivialising it unfairly, really. Um, and, but the other is that he embodies it. And that, uh, that what he is saying is, you don't get to see the law in any other guise than me. So that seems to be, I know we're talking New Testament more than old here, but that, that seems to be um, really where he's pushing. So Sermon on the Mount, you know, we think of Sermon on the Mount as being an extraordinary new teaching of Jesus. It's Leviticus. It's the best Sermon on Leviticus you've ever heard. It's how it should have been taught. His complaint in some regards is, guys, you weren't teaching it like this and you should have been teaching it like this. And if you had known me, you would have been teaching it like this. And there's a similar sort of essence in the, in the prophets. So the prophets get to, um, in Old Testament prophets, they get to come to Israel and to Judah and say, what are you playing at? You're doing this and this and this and this and this. And if you ask yourself, so here's a question that I sometimes ask, um, I can feel myself going off theme, but it's sort of tough because I've got a mic. Um, a question that I'll ask my students quite a lot is, um, how many, so I'm gonna ask you, how many of the 10 commandments do you suppose Israel broke? All of them. How long do you suppose it took? Not long, it took about four pages. Many, many, many generations later, the prophets begin to come in waves upon waves, saying to God's people, stop it. And if you don't stop it, you're gonna to have to go and I'm gonna to have to go. How many complaints does God bring, do you suppose? How many of those 10 commandments does he complain about? Just one. Just one. Idolatry. It's the only one he complains about. But he complains about loads of other stuff as well. He complains particularly about injustice and he complains particularly about corruption and abuse of, um, of hierarchies and, and that kind of thing. Some of which is not provided for in the law and the basis for that seems to be if you had known me, you would not have done these things. So what you bring to me as the letter of the law isn't observance of the law at all. I will not accept your sacrifices because it is not worship. If it was worship, you would have looked like me by now. So that seems to be a part of the, um, the, the prophetic complaint. It seems to be held up in Jesus. So when Jesus is talking about fulfilling the law, he is embodying it in its entirety. It is also worth saying about the law that there's a sort of an oversimplification about how we talk about Old Testament, New Testament, right? So Old Testament is, it's the law, New Testament is, it's all about grace. And thank goodness for grace because we don't have to do that stuff anymore. And it misreads how the law plays out. 
So here's an oversimplification that you will have heard and you may think. The Old Testament faith is if you follow the rules, you will find yourself with God. Is it, is it an idea that you're familiar with as a way of thinking? If you follow the rules, you'll end up with God. God will save you if you follow the rules. That's the way around. Jesus swaps the order. No. What is the great moment of salvation in the Old Testament? The great. What's, sorry? Right, the Exodus is the great moment. When does the law get given in relation to that? Before or after? After. Here's the order of the Old Testament. God saves you and then he gives you a law. Right? So it's, it's the same thing with Jesus. He saves you and then he gives you a way to live. So it changes what that law is all about. The law is no longer about an arbitrary list of rules where if you don't do them, he can kick you. And it is about God revealing to you what holiness looks like and inviting you to take part. It is like he's coming to you and saying, I have saved you so that you can be with me and I'm gonna show you what I am like. I'm gonna show you what I am like and I invite you to walk in my ways. And by the way, when you completely fluff that up and make mistakes over and over and over again, two thirds of the law is gonna be sacrifices so that you can still be with me after the event. You see, so there's a, there's a really different emphasis. The emphasis of law in the Old Testament is about maintaining relationship and in some regards maintaining what should be an impossible relationship. And so that is a working definition of grace, right? So it's Jesus fulfilling the law is everything about him is doing that. Um, sorry, that's a really long answer. Can I love do 30 seconds on festivals? And yeah, that yeah. Kind of, is that all right? Um, so in the Old Testament, you've got these festivals and um, so you have, uh, they're there to celebrate God's goodness. So you have sort of general goodness through day-to-day -day living. So you have harvests and you have new moons sort of celebrating the ongoing process of creation and all, all of that. So, and then you have special celebrations that celebrate God's special provision, which is particularly Passover. That's a, that's a tradition that continues as, as Judaism takes hold and as we come out the end of the Old Testament narrative, in between Old and New Testaments, you have the story of the Maccabees. The story of the Maccabees leads to the celebration of Hanukkah. And here you have this continuing tradition of um, God's people recognizing a special moment of God's goodness and building a festival around it. So now you have Jesus embodying law and, um, and you wanting to recognize special moments of goodness. Hmm. And so it is only natural that your way of doing that is to build in recognition of the cross in your festival life. And in fact, it is only natural that you centralize your, your festival life around doing that. And Jesus pushes you to do it, doesn't he? Because he talks about Last Supper, he talks about Passover being about New Covenant. And the festivals, by the way, were the way that you stayed in the old covenant. They were the way of proving and maintaining your distinction as a part of the covenant with God. And Jesus at the Last Supper talks about um, commemorating his death as being the way that you enter into this same festival life. So in other words, when you take communion, you are taking part in the Old Testament festivals because Jesus embodies that law. Right. Um 
talking about God's goodness leads us to question how could a good God want to kill Amalekites and Canaanites and why does Job's children get killed to prove a point and why does Abraham have to sacrifice Isaac? Jonathan, I'm going to give you that one. (laughs) What kind of God orders the genocide of the Canaanites and Amalekites? How could God really command Abraham to sacrifice his son? Those sort of questions. What do you think? Praise the Lord, I think. The answer is Jesus. Remember that? <laughs> I'm going to look at the one about um, Abraham and Isaac. <clears throat> because that's, to me, this is a, a powerful, powerful illustration of actually the, of the love of God. And um, so the verses in Genesis 22, 2, God's command to Abraham, he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And this is an amazing thing that raises so many questions, particularly if you're a parent. Really, anybody who thinks, what sort of God would ask Abraham to do such a thing? Uh, and there are some points that would be really good to make in this. First of all, the sacrifice doesn't happen. Small detail. From Isaac's point of view, it's quite a significant small detail. But it is really important. And of course, the culture of the time was that sacrifices were common and child sacrifices were common. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we find that abhorrent, and rightly so, so but that was the case um, at the time. And it was not uncommon at all in Ur, where um, Abraham came from, for um, servants of important people to be murdered on behalf of somebody else and children as well. So what happens is God commands Abraham to follow a pattern that appears to be parallel to what he's used to, except that he then changes the narrative. So he says, you can go along this far, on this particular path, and he gets to that point, and then there's a turnaround because there is actually a, a, a lamb for an offering. So as Abraham puts it, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now whether Isaac at the time thought that was particularly comforting, we don't really know. But it is part of this idea that God is trying to change the narrative or change the story in which most people find themselves. Secondly, to say that God and the Bible never condone sacrificing innocents and children. There's a whole bunch of passages about this. And in 2 Kings um, 17, for example, uh, and this was um, an incident, they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil on the side of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then the Lord was very angry with Israel. So God does not condone child sacrifice. In fact, what God wants really are living sacrifices which reminds you a little bit because of Romans chapter 12 and what Paul is talking about there, this idea that actually we will voluntarily come and give ourselves to him. And that's a complete contrast to this idea of some sort of horrific uh, child sacrifice idea. Um, and the New Testament picture is a lot, lot clearer. And there's a parallel, of course, between the sacrifice of Isaac that was required of Abraham, even though it never happened, and of course the sacrifice of Jesus and the parallels that run throughout scripture. How could he do that? So God is saying, I want to change the story. And really this ties in a little bit what Freddie was just saying about Old Testament festivals as well. God has a new narrative. But he takes them where they're at, they proceed, and then he turns the corner. And that gives a completely new perspective on it. 
Other people have said things like, um, oh, back in those days, life had a different value. I think that's also very true. They still have value, though. <laughs> and people were not happy about losing their family members, which is why it was such a big deal for Abraham. But I think it was this idea that God wanted to change the story. So here, in this culture, this happens, but I'm going to twist it around. In a similar sort of way, um, you may have heard it said that this idea of a tooth for a tooth or an eye for an eye just seems so terribly draconian. Reminds me of Huckleberry Finn, you know, as, he, as, he, as he's floating down the Mississippi River with Jim on the raft, they come against this, this little settlement that has a feud going on. It's been going on for generations. Somebody killed somebody all those years ago and it's been going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards for decades. And it had to stop. And what God's done with that, with that limitation, with that, that uh, law, if you like, of, of an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, is actually limiting retribution. So it doesn't go on and on and on and on endlessly. He's taking them where they're at and changing the narrative. And I think that so often is what God is doing in the Old Testament. Yes, Freddie, but yeah. what about the Amalekites and the Canaanites? Yeah. Well, so just, just to say very briefly about Isaac, though, as well, there's a really interesting little structure going on in that. Um, in that chapter, you, you know the sort of the movement of the speech. So there's God calls to Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham says, "Here I am," and um, and God says, "Here's what you're going to go and do. You're going to sacrifice." Um, he doesn't say that. If we're going to be strictly fair about things, he said, "You're going to offer your son to me." Um, then um, the halfway through the passage, um, Isaac speaks and says, "Father," and Abraham says, "Here I am." Same response. And he says, where's, where is the, where's the sheep? Where's the ram? And I think Abraham answers, God will provide the ram. And then the third time comes, an angel comes. Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham responds, here I am. Same response again. So you can see this sort of threefold pattern. And the angel comes and says, uh, the ram has been provided. Now, here I am might be language that you recognize. If you know the Old Testament, you might recognize it from two or three different places. You might recognize it from Isaiah. You might recognize it from Samuel. You might recognize this as being, as, so it's really carefully written. You know, the, the way that this has been chosen to be recorded is, is carefully done. So you have here, what is pointed out to you is the language of a prophet. Now, a prophet's job is not to predict. A prophet's job is to proclaim. So what you have here is two things. Firstly, God knows something about Abraham that Abraham doesn't yet know about himself, which is the extent of his trust in God. So like Jonathan said, there is no point at which Abraham's life is in threat here. And it's, it's important to keep that. So, sorry, what did I say? Did I say Abraham? Yeah, Abraham's fine. Uh, but Isaac is also okay. And yeah. um, it's important to know that. Um, but you have here as well, Abraham being identified as a prophet and being asked, what should happen to your son? And the centerpiece, there's an extra line in this pattern. So there's a question inserted, where will the sheep come from? And the answer, God will provide the sheep. That is, in this pattern, highlighted as a prophetic proclamation. This is how this offering will take place. Abraham may not be thinking of it in that way. It's the way the text is framed. 
So you are being invited to see Abraham as making a prophetic statement that is then fulfilled. It is not God's way of doing things on the face of it that happens, it's Abraham's way of doing it that, that happens. So there's a sort of, it doesn't put all the problems away. You should always be nervous about anyone that can put all the problems away, but it does reframe it a little bit. Um, my first question about the Amalekites really is what's wrong with the Philistines that you didn't name them? Happy for them to be slaughtered. Um, so there's some different schools of thought on this. There's been, um, there has been some really interesting work done by people looking at the language that's used, trying to work out ways of retranslating it. Really interesting. I'm not personally very convinced, but let me tell you about uh, one example of it, um, which is to do with the word, um, which in Hebrew is cherem. That's not, <coughs> tripped over the top of that, cherem. Uh, which Rowan you, Williams would be able to say it. Yeah, he'd be able to say it. Uh, which you would translate as um, utterly destroy. That whenever it says completely destroy, utterly destroy, it's that word behind it, cherem, that's behind it. What it literally means is to sort of cut off your nose, and um, it, it, it sort of more simply means separate yourself from. Now, so there has been some suggestion, really interesting idea. This some suggestion by some scholars that in fact we should not be hearing God say destroy them, he should be saying, separate them from. Let me give you an example of where you can do that. And you really can do that in this example. And in fact, you should do it in this example. So this is Deuteronomy 7. We needed three podiums, didn't we? Yeah, so Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're about to enter and occupy, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations mightier and more numerous than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them, cherem them. Make no covenant with them, show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for that would turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly, cherem you quickly. So you have this, this underpins the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. So this, this one text sort of filters through into those books. There are some problems with understanding cherem as meaning to completely destroy. Here are the problems. I'll read it again. I'll point out the problems as I go. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're about to enter and occupy and he clears away many nations before you, as in when you get there, they won't be there, First problem, then you list the sort of problems, list the nations. And the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must cherem them. Now, make no covenant with them. How do you do that if they're dead? Exactly. Do not allow your children to intermarry with them. How do you do that if they're dead? So there's a, there's a real sense here that maybe what's happening is that it's about separation. It becomes clearer as you read on. There's a bit I didn't read you. After it says the Lord will be angry with you, it says, this is how you must deal with them, right? So now you're gonna get the description. This is how you must deal with them. Break down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles, burn their idols with fire. No death, destruction of idols. Completely separate yourself from it. It is absolutely what's going on in Deuteronomy 7. It is not what's happening in most of Joshua. And so the argument has a limit. So where you tend to go at that point is to say, well, the language of the ancient world is to, um, is to, we would look at it and say embellishing. 
Um, it is victory language. So what we come into is the issue, and this maybe will come up when we talk about literal reading, mm -hmm. is, is the issue that um, the ancient world speaks and thinks differently than we do. And they got to write it. And they had to understand it because God's word was for them too. So it is our job to learn how they thought, not their job to guess how we will. So as a result of that, it is important that we remember what they thought they were talking about. And there are many differences for how they write to how they write. So one of the ways that they write differently is history. They're not interested in fact, 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 fact. In the way that we want to do history, they don't care. They want to know about theology. So they write their history theologically. And, and they write their history in terms of battles. They write their, victory, their history so that you are absolutely, unequivocally certain about who the victor was. The whole ancient world does this. If you go to the British Museum up the road, you can, um, you can go and see there's a wall which has got a huge underbelly of a calf on it, or bull, I think, on it, uh, in the Assyrian section. And it lists out all the conquests through... Uh, through the Near East, including Judea and Israel, um, and including the destruction of Lachish and, and all of that. And it talks about, I completely decimated them and there were no survivors. And all that language from Joshua seems to be here. And so there's a, you, you may argue, well, this is just how they write about victories. And there's good biblical cause to say that, because in the book of Judges, you then get those towns revisited and there's plenty of people there. And the book of Judges says, actually, God, God's word to them is, you are going to have to live with them. Mm -hmm. So there's a degree to which it is, um, I've seen that, there's a degree to which it is, um, it may be entering into the language. I don't know how satisfied I am with that. Um, but you can see the sort of room for manoeuvre that you've got there to just think through the problem. Um, and so there is... I'm, sorry, just to clarify, I've, I've heard it read, I've read that Joshua says, and they killed everybody, and then Judges, the very next book in the Bible is basically, and because they didn't kill everybody, they were yeah. living intermixed with the land. So it's like, yeah. either Joshua is true or Judges is true. Well, no, not... Do you if, don't think it's that stark No, I don't. I think if we're listening to how they speak, right. then, um, then that it isn't it isn't inconsistent at all. Okay. In the same way that Deuteronomy 7 isn't inconsistent by saying, completely destroy them and here's what you do with the survivors. And so there is a bit of a, a sense in Joshua of they all died and then in, um, in Judges of none of them died or mm -hmm. they didn't all die. But actually the point that they're trying to say is God victoriously took you into the land. He is fulfilling his promise, Joshua. And Judges is talking about the, the difficult realities of trying to hold together a tribal nation. Yeah. And so it, 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 they've got different issues that they're talking about. So inevitably they're going to fall on different languages. There are, there are also some interesting subplots going on in each of those. So Joshua, so the issue is, you know, God is for his people. He's against not his people, right? So if you're not his people, he's against you. If you're in his people, he's for you. The question is, who are his people? So it may well be that we would say, well, his people are those who were born into the nation of Israel. Right, first story in Joshua. They cross over into the promised land. They come into, uh, into uh, Jericho. receives the blessing. You see, that's evidence that I'm talking too much. Um, she receives the blessing of an Israelite and is given a house in the, in the people of the Lord. Incidentally, how much of the wall of Jericho was knocked down? 
All of it. Where does she live? In the wall, she gets to keep her house. It's like it's making a point, right? So, um, so you have this sense that uh, you know, she's an Israelite. She was born the worst of the worst, bottom of the list. Canaanite woman prostitute absolutely can't receive blessing. She received blessing. First person to do so. First person to receive her inheritance out of all of Israel. Next story, story of Achan, an upright Israelite soldier who gets given the curse of a Canaanite because he started stealing other gods. And Joshua has this sort of undercurrent of, I am for my people, but don't assume that you know who my people are. So, sorry, yes. So I, I find that really interesting what you said, and I wonder whether it would be fair to say, therefore, that somehow the utter destruction of a people has to do more with their... Uh, what you might describe as cultural and religious heritage and identity. So as in the way that Israel is defined effectively through its relationship with God, um, the other peoples are defined uh, often through their religious practices. And so therefore by tearing down the altars and destroying the, the places of sacrifice, if you're taking that away, then that sort of neutralizes effectively their identity uh, without actually physically killing all the people. And that, that, that is what is asked of Israel rather than um, actually physically slaughtering every single person. And, um, and that therefore, if they, if they do that and therefore have that separation or neutralization sort of zone around them that allows them to maintain their relationship with God and their, um, their religious identity. And that can then invite others in who... Uh, like Rahab, um, actually live and seek that relationship with God. Is that a fair summary of what you said? It reminds me of Jesus clearing the temple to make way for the Gentiles to come in, actually. Um, speaking of exaggeration and literary language, what about, we had a good one last two weeks ago about how come Jesus... How come Moses sees God face to face and then he also sees his back? Can you, Jonathan, can you tell us about what is it, what's the language of people seeing God? And, and also I'm going to lump in with it. What about all these, are these, when they say, you know, the person lived for 822 years, like is that exaggeration? What do we make of these exaggeration or literary oddities? Go on. One of our great challenges is that we're trying to understand a people who lived a long time ago in a very different culture that we can't connect to in any way, shape or form. And that is a reality that we have to live with. That's not an excuse that we don't have to try to work out what's going on. But it is, it is nevertheless a reality. My wife was born in Turkey. Her parents were missionaries. She's American. And what they found when they lived in Turkey all those years was that the culture of Turkey was much closer to the culture of biblical times, New Testament, and to some extent Old Testament, than it was in North America and definitely than it is in the UK. People were very friendly, for example. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so there's a cultural difference in the same time zone. And the cultural difference is huge. So we have a cultural difference between the culture of this period, and we have in our present culture. We also have a distance in time. We also have a distance, and, and as Freddie said, why were these things written down? 
was there a mathematical framework that wanted to fit everything from Genesis to Revelation in a neat little box? Well, to me, that sounds perfectly plausible, <laughs> but probably not. Because what was written down was, for example, and was to illustrate the nature of God, which is what theology really is, the study of God, so we understand who he is and how he interacts with the people he's made. And he has a desire for intimacy. So that, go, go to that question about face-to-face um, um, -face and God. So in Exodus 33:11, the Lord would speak to Moses face-to-face -face as one speaks to a friend. So that's quite cool, isn't it? I mean, imagine being like that with God, just... And in Exodus 33, 18, Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, but you cannot see my face. Uh, for no one may see me and live. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand till I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Doesn't the author realize what a pickle He's made of that narrative and how people in London in 2019, for the first time in all of history, would have picked up this inconsistency. See, it goes back to the nature of what language is, partly. So people say, well, and I hear this frequently, but the text literally says X, Y, and Z, as if literally is better. You know, if you're an actor and someone's about to do something on stage, you might say, well, go break a leg. Mm. Now, literally, I'm not a medical person, but literally that means that the bone in your leg, somewhere between your ankle and your thigh, fractures. Sometimes it comes out through the skin. That is a literal break of leg, but that's not what they mean at all. They really mean go and do a great job. Go for it, I'm behind you. And, and so often we say, well, the text literally says X, Y, and Z, as if that is a better interpretation. But it isn't always the case. And we apply different standards to scripture than we do in our everyday lives. So we are grossly inconsistent with this. So in this particular instance, the idea of being face to face is just a matter of intimacy. It's, a, it's sort of a, a way of saying there is an intimacy between Moses and Yahweh which was noteworthy because it, it narrowed a gap that was so incredibly large. And this intimacy was very, very important for him. So that, that, that word face, you see that word, uh, Genesis 1 verse 2, over the spirit of the Lord, hovered over the face of the waters, or we say surface of the waters in the NIV. It's the same word. And the idea there's an intimacy between the Lord and Moses. When he talks about the fact that Moses wanted to have an encounter with God, this wasn't an intellectual sort of titillation here. This was, I just want to encounter you in all your glory. Can I see your glory? When he did that, when he asked for that, God said, no, you cannot see me in all my glory. But I will show you just a little bit because that's all you can handle. Remember Isaiah? He said, you know, I'm, I'm undone in Isaiah 6 when he had that, that, that vision because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and you know, I've, this is just too big for me. It's too big. So one of them is an intimacy thing face to face and the other one is what we call a theophany. It's when, when there's such a, a dynamic encounter between people and a God that cannot be encountered. It's the most remarkable thing. If you ever had a God encounter in your life, a profound God encounter that's changed your everything, you know what that's like a little bit. I remember once being in a situation where I, 
you know, some of the encounters I had with God, I'd just been reading my Bible, and all of a sudden, we were chatting about this waking out on the pavement tonight, actually. Sometimes I've just read a verse, and it's just spoken to me. And I've read that verse maybe dozens of times. And probably it still had the same text in it, but I never noticed it before. It was a God encounter. Powerful. I've had God encounters powerfully when the Holy Spirit has come on me and been down on the floor, and there's nothing I can do to get up. It's a powerful God encounter. Maybe you've had something like that. Which is better? Neither. Mm. You know, it's a God of diversity. So the point is there's an intimacy with God face to face, but there's this theophany, this dynamic God encounter that will change his everything, just like Isaiah had in Isaiah 6. And the context of it all, which is interesting as well, it was after the golden calf was made. Remember, it was made out of the jewelry of the Israelites. And it was put there because Moses went AWOL and they had this calf because they wanted something concrete, <laughs> concrete, gold, to worship, something solid, something they could see because God was distant mm. and invisible. Mm. So they had this, and in the context of that, their intimacy with God went and God in his grace brought them back. And that's God's amazing redemptive heart. So you see in this little passage, I think, a, a great picture of the redemptive nature of God. And he takes the people who have really messed things up and says, I want to bring you back to intimacy. In fact, I want to go beyond that. I want to actually give you an encounter with me. So my heart with scripture, as, as just this generally, is that people don't just encounter intellectually with it, but they encounter in such a way that their intellect and their whole being is changed. And this was the experience that Moses had. Um, in terms of the... The, you know, I mean, the question here is, is look, there's 200 million years of dinosaurs that uh, glumping around. The divine purpose is indeed mysterious. And then what do we make of men who live 950 years, of sons of God who mate with the daughters of men, of Nephilim and giants walking the land? Are we meant to take these narratives literally? And if not, how do we know what is literal and what is not? Because So the word literal here triggered me to read this yeah. question yeah. out. And I mean, it's an obvious... It's one of the main questions that we have about these Absolutely. texts. Absolutely. So could Freddie and Jonathan speak to that? That's <laughs> just Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I... Um, Do you want to stand up? Yeah, I'll so stand up. I, um, I, I would mostly want to echo what Jonathan said about reading literally. You know, there's mm. a... It is difficult to know when to, do, when to read one way and when to read another. And, you know, I, I can see that. A lot of that's to do with familiarity, really. Uh, you know, a lot of that's to do with just spending time thinking in that sort of way around the t a text a little bit. But um, is it? Know, a, I, it I think could, I, if, just to pause you, is it a bit like? Tell me if I'm wrong. But when I've talked about this, I'm saying we all instinctively know when we hear the Robin Hood story. Yeah. Oh, we know it's not true, but we don't think it's useless. We think it's the Robin Hood story, and we and we treat it differently than when we hear an account of I don't know London during the Blitz. Like we instinctively know a Robin Hood story yeah, is true familiar, in a different way. So we're familiar way. with the language. We know that if a story starts once upon a time, yeah. you're probably not expecting a documentary yeah. historical thing. So, and and there, are, there are the same sort of tropes in, yeah. in Old Testament language and in New Testament language yeah. um, that, that we, we are less familiar with now. Yeah. So there's work to be done in that sense. You know, there's, there's time to be spent. So the Old Testament is not tricking us. It thinks that we know this is a once upon a time story, but we've just missed that yeah. clue. Yeah. yeah, quite a lot of the time. So, I mean, I, I think there's a... I've got a problem with the idea that literal is best, really, as in it's the best way of telling truth. I've got, I've got a problem with that. And um, 
You know, Robin Hood is, is, may or may not be a good example. Parables are a good example. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not expecting in eternity to encounter the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. And maybe he'll really surprise me and, you know, fab. But, um, but I'm not expecting him because I understand that we're in the language of a parable at that mm-hmm. point. But it's a parable that communicates real truth. And it's a parable sometimes that um, can communicate truth better than reality can. So there are things that the Bible is um, really vague about, and it's kind of irritating that it's vague about it. So beginnings and ends of the world. And you know it's, it can sound specific, right? So Revelation less so. Genesis can sound pretty specific, Genesis 1. But the fact that you can't get two people in a room who quite agree with each other about what's going on there tells you just how unspecific that is and, mm-hmm. uh, and how how vague it is and because the Bible is not especially interested in your fascination with the hows and the whens of the kingdom, the mechanics of the kingdom, you know, because the Bible's primary purpose is not to put you in charge of the levers to keep the cosmos going. You know, the the Bible is concerned with you knowing your father. That is what the Bible is concerned with and if it is not directly related to that, it can wait. And so, you know, there's a degree to which, I, I, I talk on Genesis 1 quite a lot, I happen not to think that it's talking about a literal event, um, and the reason I don't is because it's, it's, it seems to me to be two things. Firstly, it is, uh, it is not telling a narrative, it is a piece of liturgy. It's relatively recognisably a piece of liturgy, it's got beats that you would hit, right? So, and God said, and it was so and there was morning, and there was evening, and God saw it, and it was good. You know, it hits these beats, and it does that because it is meant to be recited. And it is almost certainly the case that it was being recited because it lives in a world where creation stories are recited at the new year. And if you then go looking for what other creation stories are knocking around, you may well know that there are stories that bear, on a quick glance, some uncomfortable similarities to the Genesis story. So you, you might have heard of the Babylonian creation story, which is called the Enuma Elish. And it's, it has a lot of the similar movements. It's a story told in seven parts. It's a story that involves, it starts off as a love story. It doesn't seem a very likely one, but it's a love story. And it's the story of two gods of, who are both water. And so it starts with waters stirring. And these two gods, you have the wild waters and you have the, and you have the calm waters. The wild waters of the mother, Tiamat, and the calm waters of the husband, whose name I've, has disappeared from my head. Marduk. No. No. Okay. Yeah, he's, a, he's a grandson. Um, <laughs> what do uh, I know? Damari, because when I... It's, anyway, it doesn't matter. But anyway, so they are... They are um, um, these waters swirl around. This is the love story. The waters swirl around, and in that intermingling, children are produced. And these children, little demigods, children, are, are hanging around. But children, anyone here who has had children will know, are really annoying. And they make a lot of noise, and they don't sort of do as they're told. And these parents get really annoyed at the interfering children. And so the husband's, Apsu, the husband's solution to this is to kill them. Now, I am a husband and father of children. I... I've got no problem with Apsu. So his solution is to kill them. And the mother, Tiamat, cannot bear the thought of the, of, um, the, of the loss, so she warns the children. Now, this is not sounding much like Genesis, but it will do. So the, the children gang together, and they all come together under uh, one child, uh, Marduk, 
who says that um, if you all follow me as your main god, I will defeat Apsu. Um, and they rise up and they kill Apsu. And Tiamat is completely uh, crestfallen, heartbroken and enraged. And in her stormy waters, she fiercely goes against her children and there is a huge battle that breaks open. In this battle, Tiamat is defeated and Tiamat's body, made of water, is separated from the waters below to the waters above and in the midst, the universe is created. And then in the midst of all of, of that, uh, you, oh, this is a moment for you to talk about spirit, isn't it? Because there is, uh, there is a, a wind that moves across the waters at the beginning of this story, which is very common. And wind and, and spirit are the same word in Hebrew. And um, so you have um, this scene where the waters have been separated, the universe is created, and then the uh, gods set, up, uh, set to the task of building creation by bringing forth land. And then they, they realize there's lots of work to do, so they create humans to, um, to do all the work of the gods so that they don't have to. So the humans are slaves, and then the sun is created as the image of God. So there's lots of the same hallmarks, and you can look at that and think, oh man, does that mean that Genesis is copying? But in fact, the differences are so huge. But to boil them down, they're twofold. Firstly, there is not loads of gods, there is one God. And the passage seems to go out of its way. So the name for God in this passage is Elohim, which is, if any of you have encountered that word, you might know it's a plural word, which is an oddity. And some translations have gone so far as to say, in the beginning, God's created. It's really sloppy because it doesn't pay attention to how Hebrew works. The way that Hebrew works is that if the noun is plural, the verbs and the, ne- and the, and the adjectives attached to it have to be plural, and they're not. They're singular. It's making a point of saying this singular Elohim has something plural about him. So this is, that's one word in, by the way, or second word into the Bible. You know something really intimately important about who God is. Second big thing that you're told is, you're not slaves. Egyptian creation myths run a similar sort of pattern. If you want to put the pen in Moses' hands, they run a similar sort of pattern. Uh, and in, the, um, in those stories, humanity is created by accident. I haven't got time to tell you why. Uh, but you're not an accident. Mm-hmm. You are not slaves. You are honoured and bearing God's image in the world. So, you know, you have these, it's like a counterpoint. So the problem is you've got to go and know that. If you do know that, this passage looks really different. It, does, it looks less like a piece of information that's fairly static about how the world started. And it looks more like God coming at you with, with good theology against bad theology and standing in a world that is preaching all wrong things about God and saying, no, this is what your story would sound like if Yahweh was sovereign over it. And so that turns Genesis 1 into a piece of scandalizing political firebrand text and a prophetic, living, moving thing, which is really, really exciting, I think. How you know when it's doing that is very difficult. So Genesis 1 to 11, as a general rule, is widely recognised to be falling into this sort of category. Mm-hmm. And um, prophetic texts are, are, are prophetic. And so you know, we sort of intuitively already do this quite a lot. And so you, you intuitively read prophetic texts with a sense of, you know, the truth it's trying to tell me is more important than the detail of that morning. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I 
We're kind of talking around the answer more than answering it, but does that help? Yeah. Is that helpful? Do you have thoughts on that? Uh, and also, you could, Jonathan, you could maybe talk to us a bit about Job, who came up as well, because I think Job falls into this category as well a little bit. It does. Um, there was a good question here. I mean, it'd be good to hear you talk about Job, but there was a good question about, like, you know, we, we revere Abraham and David and Solomon, who are all deeply flawed people, and yet nobody wants to be like Job. Why not? <laughs> well, yes, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And the short answer to that is that we want to talk about Job a lot more. So absolutely, yes and amen to that statement in um, question six in our list. And the truth is, I think, that Scripture paints this amazing picture of flawed people throughout. And the great thing about that is that we can relate to flawed people. I find that when I'm uh, speaking and I share my mistakes and things that have gone wrong, people connect with me so much better than they do with the things that I've felt have gone quite well. And I have so many of those, so it's quite handy to be able to use those. And Job seems to be a counterpoint to that. So I, I absolutely agree, and, and we chatted about this beforehand as well, that it would be really good to spend some time looking at someone like Job because he has so much to teach us. And um, I'm helping a chap actually through WTC, the Westminster Theological Center, is it? Mm -hmm. um, that Stephen's involved with, in fact, also Freddie as well, um, supervising a, a master's thesis on spirit in the book of Job and what that really means, which is quite an interesting topic. Just to pick up on something that Freddie said about what language really means. Um, what, I, what I'm doing for my PhD and just coming to the end of it, praise the Lord, after six and a bit years doing this part-time on top of a full-time job, is looking at a little phrase in the Old Testament in the Hebrew text called Ruach Elohim or Ruach Adonai or Ruach Yahweh. And it's spirit of or wind of or breath of God in the same word in relation to Yahweh, which is the covenant name for God in the Old Testament. And Ruach can be translated as spirit or breath or wind. And as I said before, I love things to be precise, love things to fit in neat little categories. But the reality is that certainly in the way that Hebrew language is designed, there's a certain ambiguity in there that I love to resolve and they love to keep in. So if you're a lawyer, um, I would imagine that the way legal texts are written are done in such a way to make them as unambiguous as possible so there's not dispute. You want a medical diagnosis to be unambiguous, don't you, for the same sort of reason. But in, in Hebrew language, an ambiguity is seen to be a strength because it opens up a whole breadth of meanings, doesn't narrow things down. So in Genesis 1-2, the Ruach Elohim hovered over the waters. Is that the Spirit of God? Is it the breath of God? Is it the wind of God? Does it really matter? Is it all the same thing? It's an interesting question. And um, you might have all sorts of views on that. But the conclusion I've already come to is it doesn't really alter it if it's the wind of God or the breath of God or the Spirit of God. Because I think there's just different ways of saying effectively the same thing. And I use that as just as an example of how language can be so very, very different. Um, I don't speak any other modern languages apart from English. But obviously there are at least 
well, at least one person here who speaks French, and others perhaps who speak other languages. And you know how difficult it is to translate things between English and another language in the modern context. Sometimes there are words that fit, sometimes there are not. My son-in-law is German, and uh, they've been influenced in their church in Germany, West Germany, uh, the western side near the Dutch border, heavily influenced by Bethel Church. Um, and there, there are words coming out of, of that sort of renewal movement that they can't translate into German. And I don't know German very well, so I'm trying to work out what on earth they're saying, and then occasionally they say impartation. <laughs> and I think, ah, okay, that's what they're talking about. Because it doesn't always translate. And it's just the same with Hebrew and English. So we have an imprecise way, or an imprecise perspective on the text, because we don't see it in the original language. Even if we see it in the original language, we realize that the ways of translating that into English can be quite varied. I don't see it though now, I have looked at this over the last few years as a negative, but actually as a positive. Because the ambiguity in a particular word can open up different possibilities of meaning. The great danger is assuming that every possible meaning is included every time you see that text. I think that's a fallacy of interpretation. So a classic example, if you, I don't know if you know about Bethel Sozo ministry, people often say about Sozo, it's a Greek word, it means saved, healed, and delivered. Well, it can mean saved, and it can mean healed, and it can mean delivered, and occasionally it means more than one, but it doesn't always mean all of them. Mm. See, that's an exegetical fallacy. Mm. And the same thing can happen, to, to, by which I mean, when we exegete the text, when we explain the text, when we try to understand what it says, we can make an assumption that seems so logical to us, but actually the text doesn't allow that. And we have to be very, very careful. So we can't assume every aspect of a word is included in its meaning. But there are times when there's an overlap. And this overlap, this ambiguity, is very troublesome to us who think things from a, a modern Western worldview. But from a Hebrew thought pattern, hmm. it was perfectly acceptable. Hmm. And again, that's part of the challenge, mm -hmm. and maybe the beauty, of trying to interpret an ancient text. Speaking of interpreting some more ancient texts. Freddie, let's talk about sex. Um, first one, which I think is less complicated, uh, why did God allow incest in the Old Testament? And then there's a story of some sisters who get their father pregnant. I don't understand why he allowed it under any circumstance. That's, so we could talk briefly about that. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, and then the other one is, um, is it possible to reinterpret the Old Testament prohibition on same-gender sexual relations? Yeah, okay, so incest we can do really quickly. It's, it's, um, so the story that's being alluded to here is, is Lot and his, his two daughters. It's yeah. quite important that there is, to note that there is a difference between describing an event and approving of it. And Scripture's recording of an event does not license the event. Otherwise, you should all be building golden calves. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not... It's not a logical step to say it describes it, therefore it's God's law to do it. It's, it is not allowed. And if you want to know if, that it isn't allowed, then go and read Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 is mostly a very specific, a needlessly, you might think, specific list of mm -hmm. different incestual relationships you shouldn't have mm -hmm. that is expressed in a, to our ears in a quite a funny way. It's not supposed to be funny, but it is quite funny. Don't sleep with your mother. She's your mother. You know, it's, it's that sort of expression. Don't sleep with your brother's sister. She's your aunt. And it's a little bit like Leviticus is reading through and saying, don't sleep with this relationship. Uh. You know, that's the sort of the tone of it. 
to our ears, but it's, it is categorically clear that God is, does, does not approve. And the fact that people do it and he doesn't immediately correct it is not the same thing as him approving it. Now, this is something that's really important and you should be really grateful for, by the way, that God is not interested... No, that's not the right way of putting it at all. God is not prepared to overrule your decisions. Because if he overrules your decisions, two things disappear straight away. Firstly, your free will. That's almost the only inherently human gift you have. You get to keep it. And the other is a genuine relationship between you and God. He does not overrule. What he wants to do is to invite you into transformation, not to conform you. So if he were to overrule every moment of sin, then what on earth is the cross all about? You know, why, why not just go sin to sin to sin and him just constantly intervening and overruling? So that is not what we see. The scene that we see with Lot and his daughters is one of very many, very sad instances of God's people living in an ungodly way. And God's response to that repeatedly is to draw closer to them, hmm. to speak prophetically into their lives and ultimately to resolve the whole thing on the cross. So there's... Um, there's a sort of a fallacy to suggest that we see sinful behaviour, therefore he's licensing it. He's, he's not. So that's the, that's the first thing. Um, so the sexuality question is interesting because of how it's asked. So let, I'll read the question exactly as I was sent it, and I'll tell you how I understood it, and I will answer it in the spirit of how I understood it to be asked, and apologies if I've misread that. Um, so here's the question. Is it possible to reinterpret the Old Testament prohibition on same-gender sexual relations. So it tells me two things. This is how I read it. Firstly, that the person asking the question has decided what the Old Testament says, so it needs reinterpreting. And the, the second is that um, they want it to be reinterpreted. Now that second, may, I may be misreading that. That's just how I hear it. So I'm going to answer in the spirit of how I'm understanding that question. Um, so, is it possible to reinterpret? Uh, yes, it is. It doesn't mean to say that you should, uh, but it is possible. So, let me walk you through how it's possible. Um, and, but the, here's the problem, right? The problem is, I've got a microphone and a platform, and I have a career being a Bible teacher, and the problem is, that puts me in some sort of objection objective sort of position over you on this issue and I shouldn't have it so really you should imagine me sitting down and chatting with you about it but um, so here's how you might work your way through it right and you just take it or throw it um, so the first thing well the first observation I might make is it's interesting that it gets recognized as an Old Testament problem because it's much more said about it in the New Testament than the Old we're talking about three sentences probably in the Old um, we're talking about one reference in Genesis 19 to um, to, uh, to lots going, uh, living in, uh, in Sodom and the men of Sodom coming and saying, uh, let me have the angels so that we may have sex with them. Um, and then we're talking about two sentences in Leviticus. They're, if I've missed something, I apologise. They're the only three I can think of. Uh, two sentences in Leviticus that essentially say the same thing. You should not lie, a man should not lie with a male as with a woman. The one is in Leviticus 18, once two chapters later in Leviticus 20. Uh, the New Testament, I think, also only has three instances, but they're much more expansive. They, they talk around the issue more. Um, so here's some cautionary observations. The first cautionary observation is um, 
the singling out of homosexuality as the issue, I find a little curious. So, for example, in Leviticus 20, the sentence before do not lie with a man is anyone who curses their mother or father should be put to death. And it's all part of the same statement. So it seems selective to not worry about that one, but to worry about this one. For a start, that just seems interestingly selective, that there's something about this particular sin that we have identified as being different from all the others that we don't worry about quite so much. And to put a sort of an extreme dilt on it, I don't know anyone who reads the Ten Commandments and worries about whether or not we're lying to each other as a sort of a conceptual thing. It's not that we approve of it, obviously, but we can understand what it's like. We can understand how you can live as a Christian and lie because we have experienced it. There's a degree to which I wonder whether or not our concern about this sin is that largely the theology is worked out by people who don't have any experience of it. Now that is speculative in the, in the extreme, really. Um, but the selectivity is a, an interesting uh, caution. Another caution would be that um, the conversation seems to be around behaviour and not about orientation. That seems very much to be leading with the wrong issue um, because we have a very established and sophisticated understanding of how behaviour is handled in grace. Um, but orientation really strikes at the heart of something complex. Um, and so that is a, a cautionary observation. And then there is an issue of, of context. So there is an important question to ask, I think, whenever you're reading scripture. And the, it is, it is a, a, so the, here's the first question. What does it say? And you can get your head around, what does it say? But you don't need to stop at what does it say. And actually... Understanding scripture very often involves a follow-up question, and the follow-up question is, why does it say what it says? Why does it say what it says? So, as it happens in, in these three passages, we do have some sense of it. So, in Genesis 19, what's specifically being described, because it's a part of a wider scene, is hedonism, and a hedonistic sort of desire to feed your own desires and lusts, of, the, of which this is one. Right? So that's the context there. In, in Leviticus 18, um, it's interesting. You get a series of sort of moral, um, moral precepts. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And then it shifts. The starting point for that, by the way, is don't be like the Canaanites. It's quite important, that. Don't be like the Canaanites. And then don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Mostly it's talking about incest. Don't do this, don't do this. And then you have um, a shift. And, the, and it switches to sacrificing to Molech and sacrificing children to Molech, don't do that. It talks about that extensively, and then as an afterthought of that, it says a man shouldn't lie with, a, with another man. Now, the context of that sounds quite a lot like it's talking specifically about um, idolatry and the practice of male prostitution in idolatry. It doesn't necessarily categorically mean that that's what it means, but that does feel like the movement of that text. It's less clear in Leviticus 20. Um, it feels more like a moral precept in Leviticus 20, except that it uses all the same words as Leviticus 18 and the same context of don't be like the Canaanites. So you've got this, um, these are sort of cautionary observations that it, it isn't necessarily exactly saying what we think it's saying. It might be saying a lot like what we think it's saying. It's also worth noting the concept of homosexuality does not exist. Homosexual behaviour, as we would recognise it, is quite 
widespread. But it is not considered homosexuality as a sort of an orientation or a lifestyle or anything. Largely, it's behavior that is associated with two things. The first is an elite form of hedonism, and the second is um, a, a foreign form of idolatry. Those are the two associations in the ancient world. So it is most likely that what the text thinks it's talking about is those examples. It doesn't mean you can't continue to read it exactly as we've always read it. It just means that if we're being really careful, that's probably the context of those passages. I'm more led, though, to think about um, a specific example. So that's kind of it for talking about homosexual behavior in the Old Testament. But you do have another category of, of person who doesn't fit in anywhere, and it is to do with sexuality, and, which is eunuchs. And eunuchs, we know from Jesus, actually, and from rabbinic texts, and from the, uh, from the Talmud and other places, um, eunuchs were understood to fall into three categories. And it's uh, people who have had um, being a eunuch enforced on them. Uh, others uh, are have opted to be a eunuch, and others were born a eunuch. And Jesus refers to these three categories in Matthew 19. You can go and look it up. And, um, and so you have this um, sort of curiosity of people who are born eunuchs, neither male nor female. The sort of technical term we would use for that today is intersex. They're a category of people that, that are not recognized or accounted for, particularly in... Um, in scripture. Um, the evidence as far as we can tell is that the people who have had it imposed on them is for the purposes of slaves of prominence so that they're not a threat to the women in the higher court and slaves for purposes of, of being sex toys effectively to be gruesome about it. Um, and that those who have volunteered have volunteered either because of the opportunity for status or they because they are going to partake in this uh, sexual activity. Um, so that being the case, there is a really clear black and white line on eunuchs in Deuteronomy 23. It's really clear. It's talked about in the same breath as foreigners. Eunuchs and foreigners are not welcome in the house of the Lord. They have no place. It's Deuteronomy 23 verses 1 and 2. It's really clear, really black and white. That would be um, difficult for us to deal with now if that's all it said but it would be clear. Isaiah 56, I should have opened it and had it ready. Um, Isaiah 56 um, is speaking about what the, re what the restoration of Israel looks like in a messianic context. And here's, how, here's what it says. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now that's a really, really big deal. It is interesting to note that the first person, the first Gentile to be baptized in mm. the New Testament is both a eunuch and a foreigner. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be picking up on exactly the same thing. So, mm. so if you want to reinterpret, none of this, I hope you're spotting, actually rewrites anything that the church traditionally thinks on this, right? 
So it is important to observe that and to recognize it. So you have freedom of interpretation here. But if you want to reinterpret it, where I would be looking is the only example that you have of God specifically declaring an identity concerned with sexuality as being banished, and then in a messianic context, then being welcomed. So that seems um, significant to reflect on. It is not um, the absolute answer to the problem. It, but it does mean, in the spirit of the question, is it possible to reinterpret? Yes, it is possible to reinterpret and, to, and I think, to remain faithful to biblical testimony. And it is the kind of conversation that would be helpful, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Um, it is 9.06, which we thought we'd end at 9. I'm happy to tell you we have, in fact gone through every single question on the list because some of the questions on the list we actually dealt with two weeks ago. Um, I don't know if uh, everyone's absolutely fit to bust and wants to leave or if I could get you to talk a little bit about slavery because that was a key issue that came up last week but I could just end the meeting now and then say if anybody wants to stay or (laughs) what do you want to do Andy? Um, I suggest what we do is we, we free people if they need to leave, to leave. So thank you so much. But I think it would be a shame not to tackle that issue because it was, yep. it was a significant issue that was raised last time. So if, if people are happy to stay for five or, or, or ten minutes but not longer, then we'll just tackle that issue. Yep. But please, if you need to leave, do so uh, with everyone's blessing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... Last, two weeks ago, we brought up the idea of slavery. I'll just, I'll just read it. I've not really enjoyed reading Leviticus as part of the Bible in one year, but this verse really doesn't sit comfortably with me. Leviticus 25, 44, and it's essentially a long instruction of how to treat your slaves um, and how to buy them and how to sell them. Please can you explain how we as Christians can explain this chapter to the unchurched? I felt reading this that if someone didn't have an intimate relationship with God, they could actually walk away from wanting to get to know him. I know God and I know he is good. However, reading this scripture was tough because I imagine people with unpure hearts may have felt enslaving people was the right thing to do according to the Bible. So we talked a little bit two weeks ago about how the idea of slavery was adapted and changed and undermined in the New Testament and beyond. But we'd love to hear your comments on this. Again, it's a Leviticus passage. Um, Yeah, take it away. What do you think? Okay, well, um, hang on. I I made some notes. Let me try and... The problem is I haven't got handwriting you can read. Um, So we we talked about um, at least one principle that's quite important earlier on. In fact, we've mentioned it a couple of times, which is that... um, God is not in the business of overruling you. He's not in the business of um, imposing himself on the world. He's in the business of relationship and inviting you into relationship. What that means is that he works with imperfect people and he works through imperfect systems. And that's difficult. That complicates things for us because if God works through someone, it can look an awful lot like he is affirming what that person stands for. So you're... Uh, you might want to think about someone like Samson. If you go to Judges and read about Samson, I mean, he's a great hero of the Bible, 
Honestly, you would not have enjoyed time with him. He's, he's a nasty piece of work. He is self-centered, he is violent, he is arrogant. Um, but there is something in him. There is something in him that makes him an agent of the kingdom. And God uses him and God blesses through him. And honestly, it's quite uncomfortable to watch him doing it. If you sort of sit and objectively think, would I have chosen Samson? I would definitely not have chosen Samson. But God is in the business of working with imperfect people and with imperfect systems. And this is how he does it. And we really should be grateful because he still does it. And he still works through each of us. And we are not in a um, very good state some of the time. And it's all very well that, you know, ultimately and from heaven looking down, we're fine because of the cross. But actually, day to day, we're not necessarily fine. But God continues to work through uh, you in the, in, and, and through the systems that you, that you live in. So it's quite important to hold that. It's also probably quite important just to set as a, as a small little matter of context that slavery in the Old Testament isn't exactly the same as uh, it is even in the New Testament, let alone um, in the world to follow. Um, there are some marks that are very much the same, but largely slaves happen as a result of two situations. One is poverty and the other is war. Um, and so slaves end up being the spoils of war and those in, who are falling into poverty may um, become slaves in order to, to solve that problem. Um, so it, it doesn't make an enormous difference, but it does make a little bit of, of helps a little bit clarifying. The point really is um, not whether or not God allows slavery or condones slavery. The question more is, um, what does he expect of his people when they have slaves? So we know a few things about that. So we know uh, from Genesis 17 that when Abraham is asked to circumcise his family, he is to include his slaves. They are to be included in the covenant. That's quite a big deal. We know that um, in... Um, in the Ten Commandments, when it comes to observing the Sabbath, slaves are to be included in the practice of the Sabbath. That's a big deal. We know that uh, Deuteronomy also prohibits Israel from entering into slave trade, which is a big deal. We also know that Exodus, and immediately after the Ten Commandments account in Exodus, in Exodus 21, you have a whole chapter talking about slaves and talking about how you, if you have slaves, you must not abuse Slaves. So he is not overruling the system, but he is subverting the system. And he's saying, well, it's not my place or not my position or not my choice to just change the way that the world works, but what I will do is I will disciple my people to do this better. And ultimately, the line that's drawn is, the only line in the sand that's drawn is, you mustn't enslave one another. And if you find yourself, because of poverty, falling into a situation of slavery, then there is a law of jubilee which overrides this. And the thinking behind that isn't that there's something about Israel that makes them more special than everyone else. It's to do with promise. It's to do with land. So there is a promise over land. The only way that the land gets to be sustained is if it is farmed. And every family is given an inheritance and a plot of land to farm. As it happens, farming in Israel is not easy. It takes specialist knowledge, not just valley to valley or landscape to landscape. It takes knowledge, plot of land to plot of land. It is so diverse and different. It is incredibly practical and, fun and important 
that land stays within a family line, which is why you are not allowed to enslave someone, take their land from them and never return it. Because they are the only people who have that specialism on one hand, and God had made them a promise. And he had promised them an inheritance. And so, that's, so you, slavery is overruled in that particular um, instance. So he's, he's, he's not particularly singling Israel out because they're better. He's singling them out because there's a promise in their, in their life. And you know, this aspect of the land being um, really specific matters. And it matters in lots of areas of life. It matters for inane things that we don't think about, like how come it is that women leave their family and marry into the, into the husband's family, which can sometimes be seen as somewhat of a patriarchal way of doing things, not unreasonably. But as it happens... Incidentally, have you ever noticed that Genesis 2 does the other way around? It's the man who leaves his family and goes to join his wife. Interesting little bit of subversion, that. But um, the, the, the plots of land work in such a way that um, the person farming the ground needs to have the specialist knowledge passed down father to son, father to son. The woman's skills are transferable, so she moves. That's it. You know, it's a practical thing. And... Um, so slavery sort of falls into this. God isn't in the business of overriding the system, but he wants to transform it. And ultimately he wants away with it. We see it in the New Testament. So we were talking about Philemon earlier on. You see it in the New Testament. His way of, of God's way of doing things and Paul's way of doing things is not to, to say, right, Philemon, you've got to set Anisimus free and, and to impose himself. What he instead does is he describes a modelling of brotherhood. And, you know, it's different, but it really matters. It's about discipling your way into transformation and not imposing transformation on you. Imposing transformation on you is an autocracy and God is not an autocrat. God is a discipler and a father and he loves you and that is not the behaviour of someone who loves you. Um, do you have... Yeah, just one, a couple of little things to say. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, um, it's clear that everybody is made... And um, I think it's an important point to bring out, and sometimes that seems to be counterintuitive from what we see in contemporary culture, um, but definitely in the ancient world. From God's perspective, man and woman, but all people everywhere were made in his image. So all of them had that special stamp on them, which I think is important to remember. The other thing is, in the question he talked about, the, the, the question was, can you explain how we as Christians can explain this chapter to the unchurched? And, um, wow, no, I'm not sure I can, actually. Um, I mean, I would say to people who didn't have faith that if they want to read the Bible, uh, I, I would encourage them not to start with Leviticus. <laughs> Poor Leviticus. I mean, I love the Old Testament, and, uh, and that's the bee's knees. But I would encourage them, as I often do with people who are new Christians or just trying to figure it all out, is say, look, start with something like the Gospel of Mark. You've got a fairly fast-paced narrative, and you can just kind of go through it. Which raises a whole bunch of questions in Mark, not even before you get to the last chapter, of course. But it nevertheless points them to Jesus. Now, if someone's not a Christian, and they're going to come to this and say, look, I just can't work all this out. And I just think, if this is what you guys believe, that's just not for me. Trying to explain to them things that people who have been Christians for years and years and years, maybe have grown up with it, do not yet understand, I think is really being a bit of a hostage to fortune. So from a pastoral 
ministry point of view, I would not encourage someone to look at it from that perspective because I think my ability to explain something to them to their satisfaction is limited. We had a chap who came to our church and he came with his wife because she was a Christian and he said, I've got a whole bunch of questions. And he stand there with his arms folded. I'm just here to drink the tea and eat the cakes. And I said, okay, that's fine. You just bring your questions. And he brought his questions week after week after week after week. And eventually I said to him, look, Russell, um, you know, read the questions. It's not about the questions. The question is about you and God. And sometimes the questions that people bring are just an excuse to put off the real question is what they will do with Jesus. So at the end of the day, sometimes that's where you have to be with people. So if you're trying to explain this to the unchurched, I, I really wouldn't. But um, if, if you're really, really keen to do that, I think you then need to research about slavery and so on. But I think you'd have all sorts of problems. I'd much rather point people, and I think it would be much easier to point people to Jesus and say, look, start here. Take it one step at a time and see what God opens up to you, but be open to what God wants to do. And the power of God to reveal himself, even through Old Testament books that you may think are quite obtuse, is profound. Because I've had to study a big portion of this academically. But what we mustn't forget in our academic intellectual study is that this is still the living word of God that changes absolutely everything. And I think it's keeping all those things that we said at the very beginning tonight, is keeping a lot of things that seem to be opposites in fruitful tension. We use that phrase a lot at our church because they're things that appear to be incompatible. God is saying, actually, this is me, this is me, and this is me. Which one are you going to choose? Well, you need to choose all of them. And uh, that's really how I would answer that particular question. Right. Well, um, I think we're going to stop. Who was the lovely, who prayed, was it you who prayed? You had a lovely way, I really felt drawn into prayer when you prayed. Would you pray, would, could you end this evening with another prayer? What's your name, sorry? Pippa. Pippa. If you could pray for us. Oh. Great. Okay. Thank you, Lord, for the questions you lay on our heart and our minds. And Lord, for um, the teaching and encouragement we've had tonight about how we explore and begin to understand Scripture. And Lord, I pray that for each one of us and for myself too, that, um, that something that we've heard today would be a seed planted in our heart to just renew our passion and desire to read your scripture, to understand, begin to understand all you have planned and purposed for us. And Father, make us more effective for you through the working of your Holy Spirit as we share the message of good news. And we pray blessing on each other, Father. Keep us safe as we go home and grant us all a deep and restful night's sleep. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pippa. I'd just like to thank uh, Jonathan and Freddie and Stephen. Can we thank them for coming? Um, thank you for your honesty and your openness and for drawing us in not to simple answers and things, but to, to drawing us deeper in our reflection. And, um, and this is something that we're all going to continue to to reflect on, and no doubt there may be, you know, questions that have been generated by this evening. And Stephen said at the beginning that if there are other questions, 
um, he'd be very happy to um, to reflect with with you guys on as well. So please don't hesitate to feed those questions back if if tonight has has provoked more questions. Uh, that's probably a good thing, but we'd like to keep that going. But we're very, very grateful to you for traveling, for joining us, for taking time out and helping us to, to dig deeper into the, the riches of uh, a complex text, which is uh, life for us. And thank you for reminding us uh, that it's all about Jesus and about life. So we're so grateful. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>